Hi there, and welcome to the Skylight Books author reading series. If you'd like to learn more about us and our many upcoming author events, please visit skylightbooks.com, where you can browse our inventory, buy books, and join our Friends with Benefits Club. You can also follow us on Twitter, Tumblr, and Facebook. To speak to a real live bookseller like me, please call 323-660-1175. Thanks for your support, and enjoy. Hi. Oh, that was violent. <laughs> oh, okay. Uh, every time I do one of these stand mics, I'm always just like, oh. Put your mouth on it. That's what I always do. I mean, whenever I have a phallic object near here. Right. That's why God made mouths. It is. Yeah. Amen. That's what my mom always said. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, write that down. I will. It's Roxanne's. No one else can use it. <laughs> Hello, Angelinos. Thanks for coming out tonight to celebrate Eat Only When You're Hungry, a novel. I love when it says that, like, super helpfully, just in case <laughs> you weren't clear. I know. Well, because even um, when I uh, first showed this cover, like, on Facebook, have you guys heard of Facebook? Um, someone was like, uh, oh, I need that in my life. And I was like, cool, you must really like literary fiction. But they, they thought it was a diet, like a diet book. <laughs> yeah. And I, um, I hear that all the time. They're like, so you, is it fiction or is it a dieting book? And I'm like, it's fucking fiction. Like, like what part of a novel is unclear? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> oh, I bet people would think, oh, I get it. Like, kind of, oh, that would be a great diet book with all this delicious food on it. You can only eat it when you're hungry, it's fine. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah, so it kind of works both ways. And I'd love to get the diet guru money. So, do you know anyone? Um, this is like a cautionary tale of dieting. It is, actually. It's not. Among I mean, other things. Well, kind of is, yeah. Is, yeah, there's a lot of cautionary tales here. Yeah. How did you come up with this? This book, um, uh, it was something that I wanted to write for a while, but I wasn't letting myself. Um, I think partly because uh, writing from the perspective of a 58-year-old man felt um, scary. And I sat down to start writing my next book, and um, it was going to be this, or it was going to be about witches. Oh. <laughs> yeah, wow. So similar. And I was like, today I want to write about Greg, and I just started writing about him, and I just took it from there. Um, so, yeah, I just, I felt like I knew him immediately. I felt like he was, um, he just was fully formed, and, um, and I just, I just went with him. Yes, you did. <laughs> yes, you did. So... Do you have a specific process for writing a novel now that this is your second novel? Oh, yes. Well, um, I like to think about, uh, I saw Linda Berry speak once, you guys are familiar with her, um, and she was talking about when she was writing Cruddy, and um, she was typing and typing, and she just kept thinking to herself, like, this isn't working, this isn't working, like, how would I write a book if I was writing it? How would I write it? And then she was like, oh, I am writing it. And she thought, well, I would paint it first, and then I would, you know, write what I had painted. And so I thought, well, how would I write a novel? How would I do it in a way that felt doable and fun and rewarding? Because um, I just, I issue the, the, picture of the of the writer who's fucking toiling and miserable for his art and just like gonna create something that like you know 
is like the great American novel, but it just hates life. I just hate that. So I was like, well, if I was writing a novel, I um, would write it like flash fiction. I would write it that you know, so that I could feel like I was writing something complete every time I sat down. So I gave myself a word count every day, um, and I don't usually when I'm writing flash fiction, I don't use word counts, but it, it felt like a doable thing I could do. So I think I wrote like 2,500 words a day. And it ended up being these little micro chapters that the book um, is now. Um, and then I could feel like, well, I got that done today. You know, I'm not a total failure. Um, you know, I'm doing, I'm building something, I'm constructing something. Um, and you know, the page numbers are growing, and it seems legit. Um, Too legit to quit? It was so legit that it couldn't quit. Awesome. <laughs> um, Every time I hear the word legit, I just lose my shit. <laughs> you just added a new verse. I know. Uh, I introduced my son to that song for the first time the other day, and he was like, Mom, why are they so legit? Why can't they quit? And I was like, I really don't know. Once you find those answers, young man. I know. I was like, that's such a good pursuit. You know everything. Yeah. I was like, it's an important undertaking. It is. You know? Um, but yeah, so it, it was like a, a, it wasn't always fun. I mean, like, it is, it, there are many moments when you want to um, throw your computer across the room or you're like, you know, you read um, other books that you really love, and you're like, I'm never, I can never accomplish that. Or, you know, who's going to read this? Or, um, I had a moment in the middle of it where I was, um, I was like, oh my gosh, this is a, a middle-aged, cisgendered white male. Like, great. Everyone's going to love to read that. Like, there's not enough of those out there. Um, and then I convinced myself that it was like super punk rock to be writing that from like the perspective of a, you know, 30-something, um, white female. <laughs> I, I, it's never been done before. <laughs> so great. So um, it's really punk rock and that's my success story. <laughs> you want to read a little for us? Sure. Yay. First I must swallow my gum. Okay. Oh wow. <laughs> so how old are you now? Thirty-seven. <laughs> I'm the mother of two. Um, and I do not let my children swallow their gum. I hope not. It stays in your body for seven years. That's not true. Oh, it isn't? No. Oh. I grew up thinking that, so every time I swallow a piece of gum, I'm like, fuck, the clock is still ticking. <laughs> Another seven years! Like, right now, oh. I'm, it's going to be until I'm 47. Oh my gosh, what have you done to yourself? I know. Well, we'll be like gut twinsies, because mm -hmm. I, it's disgusting what's going on in there. Things are all stuck up in there. Yeah, I mean, <laughs> things, I mean, all the hair I've eaten over the years, you know, oh, not even my own hair. Oh. I have this thing where if I see I'm a hair, I, I'll know. <laughs> Later we can explore these things. Yeah. Uh, I'm, I'm one of those people that there's like a hair in my food in, in, a, in a restaurant or something. I'm too embarrassed for the server to say anything, so I just fucking eat it. <laughs> that is the whitest shit I ever Wow. No. No. Our ancestors did not survive for that. Oh my god. Oh. Saying it out loud did not feel good. I have to Okay. It fucking sucks, and um, my insides are roiling, maybe because of the gum, but maybe because I'm a terrible person. Maybe. Yeah. But speaking of the whitest shit ever, would you like to hear from this book? <laughs> I'm just going to read the first chapter. Um, maybe not even the whole chapter, because um, I might die in the middle, and then we can move on. Okay. okay. And we'll just like talk over your corpse? Yeah, I would prefer that to happen. I anytime I die, I would like people just to talk over my corpse until I disintegrate. All right, I'll <clears throat> <laughs> Please tweet it to all your followers. <laughs> um, okay. 
Um, okay, that was not part of the novel. <laughs> it was too late to be a lunch, too early to be a dinner, this disappointing collection of food Greg was packing. He was leaving in the odd smear of time between the markers of his day, not in the morning, not in the night, not even in the midday. After lunch, before dinner, the sun was out but getting lazy, everything starting to give over, accepting that this day's moment was swiftly passing. Maybe that was why he finally left. He had to get away from the giving over for once. His son had been missing three weeks. He was packing a meal using what he had in the fridge, a buttered heel of bread, a rhombus of stiff cheese, a puckered tangerine, its skin loose around the wedges inside it. When had he last bought tangerines? It had been months, maybe a year. Sometimes what he thought was a long time passing ended up being only a few weeks. Hey, when was that? Last summer? Last Christmas? And his wife answering, honey, that was only just last month. So who could know when anything actually happened? When he was a child, he often had to mark time for himself. Today is Tuesday, that I know for sure. At least I know that for sure. He was already looking forward to ignoring the lunch, stopping somewhere along the way, having a conversation with a waitress. I'm looking for my son. What came next? Shock? Admiration? He liked anticipating these kinds of things. The house was implacable, quiet and unaffected. When he left, for all the time he'd be gone, the items in the house would stay in the same place. The house was not asking him for anything. The house wasn't begging him to stay. Instead, it was watching him go. Couch, he whispered, ottoman, marking time, marking stasis. Then he said his own name, Greg. He could just as easily have said the other names he was known by, Honey, Gregory, Dad. But at the end of the day, he thought of himself as only Greg. The buttery yellow light coming in through the plate glass windows at least offered its confetti of dust, a stingy fanfare. His wife dusted often, almost daily, but sometimes you can't win for losing. You can't win for losing. There he was, his son, Greg Jr., GJ. Had he said it to GJ or had GJ said it to him? And when? On how many occasions? GJ as a child crying over a bloody knee. GJ on the phone calling from rehab. GJ drunk on the couch. On couch. Likely they had said it to each other, neither truly listening. GJ with his big paw hands, his oily t-shirts, his face getting fleshy, then gaunt, then fleshy again. Beautiful boy, my beautiful boy. Greg's eyes felt warm. But was he crying for himself or for GJ? Do you think he should cry or did he actually want to cry? These were the thoughts that kept him from the trip for the past three weeks, for his whole life, that kept him from life. Again, he felt like crying, but stopped himself. His throat pained, feeling stretched, like it was making room for something. He didn't feel allowed to cry just yet. He had seen a woman on one of those Saturday night crime shows talking about her own missing child. I know she's alive, the woman said, tears erupting from her eyes. I feel it inside. I know she knows. I'm looking for her, and I won't ever, ever stop. Greg didn't have that same certainty. He could never feel absolutely certain about anything, least of all GJ who felt as elusive and slippery as his own beating heart. But he felt sure, objectively, that he should never, ever stop looking for G.J., even if G.J. was standing right in front of him, right this minute. He put the lunch into one of the huge Ziploc baggies his wife saved and placed it by the door so he could grab it on the way out. The grandfather clock made a few half-hearted tones. It was 3.15. He hurried upstairs to pack a bag. The bedroom always smelled familiar, sweet and clothy. His and his wife's scent, their signature, did they leave it behind them at restaurants, at church? Was the smell the same for her as it was for him? Sometimes he felt exhausted by all the not knowing, by all the wondering, wandering. The oval full-length mirror next to the bed offered him a framed portrait of himself standing in his exhausted slippers, his calves still strong though too pale and disturbingly hairless. The frayed hem of the purple gym shorts he wore daily now because their elastic was shot and because they stopped the laborious swinging of his balls. 
caged them in a calming intermesh pouch he had come to love. The triple XL undershirt, the V of his chest hair still mostly brown, something he never failed to notice or feel thankful for. His belly straining at the shirt, pushing out, out, out like it was pleased to meet the world. Greg often attempted to quantify its heft, a belly pregnant with triplets, the hull of a small boat taking on water, a laundry sack filled with beer. He carried it around this heavy imposter day after day, his back giving and giving. There too were his hands, thicker than they had been when he was a young man, when his fingers were long and his knuckles seemed an af afterthought, not the bulgy crooks they were now. His acneed neck, he never had figured out how to avoid shaving rash. He had tried steam, lotions, shaving in the other direction, all to no avail. And the large anvil of his head and face, his chin and neck connected by a flap of flesh, a sheet on the line that had grown into the pin and the grass. He could see the pores in his cheeks and nose from where he was standing, his face sprouting leaks and caving into sinkholes, consuming itself, the gnarled, tortured dough of his nose, his hazel eyes, which could still appear blue or green under the right circumstances, but were always too wet looking, like he was on the perpetual verge of a sneeze. The jagged hedge of hair, graying but still thick, a small mercy. He took it all in as he did when he could stand to. If this is what G.J. has to look forward to in his old age. And then he looked away, thankful to have a task at hand. He found a crumpled duffel bag under the bed, shoved clothes and his toothbrush inside it, more than enough socks. He'd read a war novel once that said wearing wet and dirty socks was worse than getting shot. He decided he needed to throw in a pair of nail clippers as well. Then he decided to bring his father's pocket knife, though it was dull and mostly for show at this point, an item of remembrance, another marker of time. Honey? His wife was in the doorway. He hadn't heard her come in. Crisp white button-down tucked into a flowered skirt, feet planted shoulder-width in their white sneakers, sturdy, freckled calves, hair pinned back out of her eyes, purse snug under her arm, Nothing worrisome, nothing out of place. His wife was a relief to his brain. Everything about her made sense. Oh, when was the last time we bought tangerines, he asked. He had a ball of socks in each hand, and it felt good to have something to hold, to have a purpose for each hand. His wife took a step into the room, then stopped. Well, I was just at the store. Should I have... She looked at the socks in his hands, at the duffel on the bed. I was just wondering how long it's been. He transferred one sock ball to the other hand so he could have a free hand for gesturing, natural gesturing. I guess I don't really remember, she said, putting her purse onto the chair by the door where it relaxed and slumped in on itself like a teenager. Not remembering was often good enough for his wife, and though he admired this about her, it also made him feel panicked on occasion. I believe we had some in a salad about a month or so ago. Remember the night we had salmon steaks? She took another step toward him. His wife knew he felt more comfortable knowing. He could see her trying to bring up the memory, force it into existence. He did remember, though he remembered raspberries in the salad that night. He slotted in the tangerine wedges instead and decided to leave it be. He had only brought it up to buy himself some time. You're going after GJ, she said, sitting on the arm of the chair. I thought we talked about this. We did, we did. You know that you might not want to be found, Greg, right? And if you do find him, he might, you might not want to see him that way. She had picked up her purse again, was moving the straps in her hands like she was trying to figure out what they were made of. She was not G.J.'s mother, though she had mothered him when G.J. stayed with them, and Greg sometimes had ugly thoughts about how she could never understand. She had once had to stick her fingers down G.J.'s throat, had caught his vomit in her shirt the way one catches falling apples. She had said soothing things, patted his back, led him into the shower, but then she had not slept in bed with Greg that night or the night after that. They did this to each other, traded rage back and forth when G.J. wasn't able to take it. 
He knows I'll come for him, Deb. I can't ever, ever stop coming for him. He felt ridiculous saying it out loud, overly dramatic. But Deb was crying now, holding the backs of her wrists up to her cheeks. So maybe it had been the right thing to say. I just want to know when it will end, she said, her voice pinched, almost whining. She was not a whiner. They had both retired early within six months of each other, had made promises about cooking classes and tennis and trips. We could take naps, Deb said, and then in the same exact tone had said, we can have sex in the middle of the day under the dining table. They had rejoiced in leaving the pressures of work behind. They were both accountants, she for a firm and he for a small group of wealthy idiots. One of his clients, a young man who owned three barbecue restaurants, had once asked him if laundering money literally meant washing it. <laughs> but there was pressure and idleness, too. Mostly they kept the TV on and went from room to room like they were playing a slow game of tag. Deb had invented reasons to leave the house, daily grocery shopping, book club, swim lessons. But for Greg, life had started to reveal itself as a series of distractions. It felt real only when he was quiet and still, emptied. Life felt real only when he felt like a ghost. Ha! Another dramatic thing. Well, now GJ needed him, and that was a welcome distraction from himself. When your son is an addict, you can think things like, he is missing, and that is a welcome distraction, and not feel like a monster. Can't you? He had become inert, maybe. Was that even the right word? It will end, Greg said. This is the end. It was certainly an end to something, even if it was only the end to the day. Deb sniffed three quick times, getting herself together in her efficient way. GJ's mother was the kind to let her face get messy, to fall into itself, to let the snot flow right into her open mouth as she cried, to use her face, her feelings, as weapons against him. He felt a surge of love for Deb. They were the same kind of person. He understood her, and she understood him. He almost asked her to come along. In fact, it had been what he meant to say even as he began speaking. But instead he said, I won't be gone long, which was possibly a lie. And Deb would never come along anyway. There was the matter of the errands she needed to run, the dusting, the swimming, the dishes, the endless circuit of keeping up. Greg could not keep up. He no longer wanted to. In this, they were diverging, like someone had switched the tracks at the last minute, separating their train cars. They were waving at each other from windows, promising to meet up soon, so they were both lying. I don't even know where you think he is. Deb's voice had righted itself, unclenched. She was ready to move on from the emotions to the details. Will you take the Volvo? No, no, he said. They only had the one car. You keep the Volvo. I'm going to rent an RV. Deb stood up, smoothed her skirt, which accordioned back into wrinkles immediately. Well, I'll drive you to town at least, she said. Like the house, she wasn't begging him to stay. She was watching him go. He wished he could see himself, he could see himself from her eyes, wished he could be in her brain, which was probably already on to planning the next few weeks, all the things she'd do while he was gone. Plant things, dig things up, arrange and rearrange, grocery shopping, satisfaction. No staring just to the left of the raging television, no letting noise just wash over her. They had never had sex under the dining table, and he thought maybe he should attempt it now before he left. But that felt like a planting all on its own. He'd be exhausted after. He had a sudden vision of all the shifting and wiping they'd have to do once it was finished. And during, there'd be all the thoughts they were having apart from each other, about each other. Then he'd tell himself he'd leave the next day, and then he never would. Deb, he said. She was looking around, her eyes searching out something to add to his duffel, something necessary, logical, something he could be grateful to her for. Above everything, Deb valued being useful. What did he value above everything? Oblivion. Deb, oh my god. <laughs> Is that an alarm that I should stop reading? <laughs> Let me see. Oh my gosh, guys. 
I'll be done soon. Um, Deb looked at him, waiting. He cleared his throat. I took the last of the cheese. Oh, she said, I can get some more after I drop you off. Where should I drop you off? He didn't know, but these were the things Deb was good for. She logged onto the internet and found a company a half hour's drive away called Go West. By the time he was coming downstairs with his duffel bag, she'd rented him a vehicle. They call it a 19-footer. It's a compact, she said, a pad of paper balanced on her knees, her ankles together neatly. She tapped her notes lightly with her pen. Since it's just you, I figured that was okay. Plus, you're not good at parking larger vehicles. She was referring to the time years ago when they were moving GJ into a new apartment nearby and Greg had backed the U-Haul into a motorcycle. In fact, it had terrified him. Even now, he found himself snapping awake after a dream where he backed the U-Haul into Deb or GJ or a small child that was probably also GJ. Thank you, he said. She was still sitting, looking up, looking up at him with her eyes wide the way she tended to when she was being a know-it-all, something he found endearing. She looked almost childlike, Deb in her mid-50s, with threads of silver shooting through her blonde hair, he could see what she looked like as a child, pretty and serious. You know, she was saying, she handed Greg her paper and pen. She often handed things to him to put away, maybe because it spoke of their partnership, their two sides to the same shell. I think this might be a good thing. The windows behind her showed the tall trees they had in the yard, oaks and elms and a few firs, decades old, older than GJ, swaying like her backup dancers. I think... She was starting to cry again, Greg saw, tears surfacing and sliding down one after another. He put his hand on her shoulder, but then she laughed, a half bark that brought her hand up to hold the other half in. Greg, I think I might feel relieved. She laughed harder now, her mouth open, looking into his face the way people do when they want to make sure their partners are getting the joke. Greg took his hand away, but it hung in the air like it was the one part of his body that wasn't made out of flesh, like it was a metal claw or a balloon. He couldn't figure out what to do with his hand, or how he should help Deb, or if she even needed help. Her shoulders shook. She was making a silent, cackling noise. Relief is good, right? Greg said. He also felt relieved, was the thing. But he and Deb had an unspoken agreement not to call a spade a spade when it came to moments like these. People had complicated emotions. That was understood between them when they began getting serious 20 years ago, and there was no need to discuss it. He had gotten fat in retirement. He had gotten slow even more tired than he ever had been working. <clears throat> he carried his lethargic body as far as it could go, even lying down felt like he was being asked to wear a suit made of mud. He felt assaulted by the possibilities of the day, exposed by the sun. Deb had quickly learned to call him half an hour before coming home in the afternoon, so he'd have time to rush around and tidy up, change out of his pajamas, brush his teeth, pretend he hadn't been sitting in the same place for hours and hours. There was no need to discuss it. Deb understood, and Greg understood that she understood, and he was grateful not to have to explain himself because he didn't even know where to begin. Because how can you start at oblivion? Deb voicing her relief was a change, almost a betrayal, but he didn't have time to get into it. Suddenly, he had to get out. It's okay to feel relieved, he said. I just mean you're doing something. I'm relieved to see you doing something. You packed a lunch. She was holding her hand out, palm up, to where he dumped his Ziploc of fridge orphans. I did. I even buttered a, heel, a piece of bread. This made her laugh even harder, her elbows on her knees, both hands over her mouth. He laughed too, both of them laughing at Greg, this Greg goof who was basically a lump with eyes. <laughs> Deb inhaled a big shuddering gulp. She had her fill of laughing for now. She took his hand, the metal claw, and folded it into the soft warmth of her paws. But Greg, I just want you to know that GJ is beyond us now. This will probably not end well. Do you understand? Her voice was so tender, so gentle. She was trying to ready him for destruction. GJ had never gone missing for more than a couple of days, and even then it had been easy to find him in three phone calls tops. 
She was telling him that GJ was dead or as good as. I understand. He did not agree. He did not understand. One summer evening many lifetimes ago, he'd been the one to tuck GJ into bed. The boy excited, a treat to have Greg all to himself. The boy reaching under his pillow, whispering, Dad, look what God has been leaving for me in the yard. A baggie of spider's eggs, brown and fuzzy. Greg had yanked the bag from the boy's hands, run through the house, stomped the baggie to a pulp on the driveway before he thought to explain to the boy what he'd actually collected. G.J. crying so hard that he made no sound, open-mouthed grief. Greg had had a fight with G.J.'s mother that night. His emotions were right there, his rage. He'd been so young then. Why hadn't he just emptied the eggs into the yard? How could G.J. be suddenly dead? None of it computed, none of it fell into place. Deb was standing now. When you're ready, she said. G.J. had gone through a phase of mimicking her mannered ways, napkin in lap, elbows poised, just off the table, saying many thanks instead of thank you. Then he had entered a phase of despising her every move, as if her way of living, her clean, ordered, thoughtful way of living was in direct insult to his. There were moments when Greg felt the same way. When you're ready? Like he was one of her clients during tax season. But then she reached out, ran a fingertip across his cheek, cold and soft as a paintbrush. He hadn't known he was crying despite himself until then. He felt foolish, judged by the air he was breathing, simpering old man, ottoman rigid with embarrassment for him. I'm ready, he said. So when you are doing publicity for a book, you generally have to come up with a really quick summary uh, of the book. Have you come uh, up with yours yet? No, I haven't. Oh, excellent. A father searches for his son and himself. Boom! Oh my god, wow. I'm not even going to drop the mic, I'm going to football spiral it into the back. I like that. That's fantastic. Fantastic. So this is a book, in addition to a father looking for his son, it's kind of a quest, a it journey, is. if mm -hmm. you will in a camper mm -hmm. all across the south, Florida, mm -hmm. strip clubs, mm -hmm. fast food restaurants, mm -hmm. America. America. <laughs> it's great. Yeah. It's also about excess and bodies that live in excess. Mm -hmm. So why did you want to tackle that, this idea of weight and excess? I think, um, well, uh, personally, I um, have my own issues with um, food and, and weight and all that stuff. And I, and I felt like it was something um, I was thinking about a lot, and it was uh, it was something that I I I feel like when that happens, when I, I can't stop thinking about something or I can't stop um, just experiencing it, I feel like it's something that has to be exercised in some way. Um, so it was it was definitely um, something just personally that I wanted to write about and sort of figure out as I wrote, which is, I think how I figure most things out. Um, but I also just thought it was a unique way of exploring his character because he is so um, rooted in his body. He is so, um, it's, it's something, rather than something that he is in partnership with, it's something that not only he drags around, but drags him around. Um, and it's sort of the same way that he faces everything. You know, he, he isn't able it's his own denial, I guess. Um, and I was talking about this um, with someone in another interview. <laughs> um, and we were talking about how eating um, and overeating and the access to these kinds of foods, you know, which you can see on the cover of my beautiful book, um, uh, is, is like a kind of freedom in America. It's, it, it's definitely personally freedom for me. It's, it's um, you know, it's a very easy way to fill a hole. 
And I know that's like the biggest cliche ever, but it's so true. It's, it's also true. It's very true. Um, and it's immediate satisfaction. And when you don't have any interest or um, energy, or um, there's so so many other things preventing you from doing the work, <laughs> it's an easy way to feel like there's you know, some sort of accomplishment that you've you know achieved, accomplished. God, I didn't know where I was going with that. But it's like it's it's a very easy way to reward yourself, and it's a very easy like task to complete. I feel sad. I want a moon pie. You know, mm-hmm. um, that's like the fucking American story. You know, yes. and the dream. And the dream. <laughs> honestly, like I would love a moon pie right now. Uh, I've actually never had. One. What? I know what they are, but I've not yet had one in life. They're um, special. Do you like marshmallow? I like marshmallows, but I don't okay. know that I like marshmallow in, like, other forms. Okay. <laughs> like, if someone gave me a jar of fluff, oh, yes. I would be like, oh. But I use fluff. I could polish off a jar of you fluff. You can use Really? Oh, God. Marshmallows, for some reason right now, I cannot get enough of them. I'm into marshmallows. Trader Joe's make, makes vegan ones. Oh, I Hot don't tip. care about that. <laughs> <laughs> I'm glad to know that, but no, I'll fuck up a marshmallow whether it's vegan or not. But I only like the big ones. Yes. Because the little ones are too cu- uncomfortable in my mouth. The big ones like, are extra pillowy yes, too. They make me feel like there's a pillow in my mouth. Yes. Whenever I look at a pillow, I'm like, I want to eat that. it. <laughs> not in a, a food way. I just want to chew on the pillow. There's just something like about it. Mouth it a little and bit. It, yes. Yeah. And it's hard. A crisp white pillow. It is. And that's what the little, the big marshmallows are. Mm-hmm. And they're just when, when they're fresh. Mm-hmm. I like pillow. the steel ones too. Oh, you do have a problem. I want to say I'm not sure I'm not the judge, but no, that's sort of like who left these open animals? I love a little crunch to my marshmallow, and I like when they give off a little proof of dust. Yeah, (laughs) food is so sensual. It really is. Yes, I tried to do those big marshmallows all in one bite, and you can't. Oh, yes, you can. Challenge accepted. I feel like we're dating now. A little bit. And I'm happy about that. I'm turned on. I'm really happy about that. Like, let's just go get some marshmallows <laughs> in a hotel room. And see what like, we're just going to get on some pillows. You know? Like, <laughs> like in the morning, it'll just be time. ravaged pillows. <laughs> Carcasses of marshmallow bags. They're going to be like, these pillows feel licked. Is that like a thing? <laughs> what is yes, your this is Los Angeles. What's your dream to lick a pillow? Yeah, everybody's got a dream. Hollywood. This is Hollywood. That's right. Delicious. Did you have to do any taste testing in the writing of this novel? Oh, that's a great question. My whole life was a taste test. Um, I feel like, so what's really cool is, um, my editor's here, uh, FSG like asked me what foods should be on the cover. And so I basically just named all my favorite food groups um, and like foods that hold, you know, um, they're like road trip foods. They're like foods you can get at a gas station because that's where, you know, Greg would be getting most of his food in this book. And um, my special edition was the Circus Peanuts because how can you not? Um, also a good stale circus peanut. Come on, that is that is gourmet. That's the Florida in you. That is the Florida in me. This yes. this book is the Florida in me. So buckle up. Um, yeah, I uh, I didn't do any taste testing. I wish that I had. It was a huge failure on my part. But you know, there's always time. Yeah, I feel like that should be an event. I feel like we should have like a 
buffet of these foods. I know, like link. book launch, like surrounded by everything on the cover. I mean, yes, that's what I'm saying. I'm just here to give you ideas. Just like, I would like to be like buried in, up to my neck. And like maybe my arms can come out so I can hold my book while I read and then people can just come like and eat off of you and like, eat off of me. Like sushi girl? Yeah, yes. Yes. Oh my god, I hope someone's recording this. Like there's so much gold here tonight. I I mean after having two kids, we were talking about this earlier. After having two kids, I want everyone to see my body. Yeah. I mean like <laughs> I know, it's like it did a cool thing. Mm-hmm. It did. <laughs> and it looks like it did a cool thing. Uh, that's extra though, that's extra $5 if you guys want to see that. So, so Greg is remarried mm-hmm. in this novel, mm-hmm. and his first wife, Marie, is a significant part of this novel. How did you decide to like incorporate her into the story? And yeah, what were the satisfactions of bringing Marie in? Well, I really love um, how she never edits herself for him. You know, even in that first chapter, you see that Deb edits herself and makes sure that she's not pushing him in any way. That's the agreement that they have together is, you know, um, we will not, um, we've had enough of that in our lives. We will, we'll just be cool with each other. But Marie is just always like herself, like just out there. She will say whatever comes to her brain. And it's really hard for Greg to be around that because there's so much that he doesn't want to face. He doesn't want to talk about really anything. Um, and especially his marriage to her is past, you know, um, the mistakes that they made with GJ and um, she was really fun to write. I didn't, I don't think I intended her to be as big of a part um, as she ended up being, you know, he, um, never mind, I'm not going to say it's a spoiler, but um, she does end up being a larger part of the book and I just, um, I feel like it was a way to see a a version of Greg that he um, didn't give permission for and that's the, that's the version of anyone you want to see, you know? And, and she knew him when he was young and, and before all of this. And um, there was, uh, that's really beautiful, you know, even though so much ugliness came after, that was like a beautiful time in their lives. Um, so I, I just, I, I felt like I used her as a way to call bullshit on Greg. Um, Cause it's, the whole book is in his head. So um, yeah, and she was fun. She was really fun. One of the main characters is GJ, mm-hmm. but we never really see him. Yeah. That's interesting. Was it difficult to write from a place of absence? Yeah, well, I um, struggle with that a lot, and um, my husband hasn't read it yet, but he knows sort of the, the he's reading it right now. I know, I saw I, I saw you writing the divorce papers right now, and it's like, that's it, on the market, whatever you tell me to do. But no, he's reading it now. I actually told him I didn't want him to read it until it was finished, so, but I was telling him sort of the broad strokes, like, oh, it's about this guy who goes looks and looks for his son, and he was like, well, he has to find it. That's all there is to it. Otherwise, it's bullshit. Like, you have to, that's it. And then you owe it to the reader. And I struggled and struggled with that. Um, and spoiler, um, ultimately, I decided that the book wasn't about that. Um, and that's why I think I was struggling so hard with it, because it wasn't about this. Like, at one point, I was like, Greg's going to find him in, like, a weird cult. And it's going to be about the cult. And I was like, no, it's not. It's not about that. It's not about that. Um, so, um, and then for a time... Just recently, I've been like, well, I'm going to write this whole novel again, but from his point of view, and then I'm going to write it again from Marie's point of view. Um, but I think it's, you know, I'm not definitely not going to do that. Who has the time? Um, but I, I, I feel like in the end, you get to see GJ's perspective of Greg. It's, you know, in a brief but um, accurate way, and it was enough. So. 
Oh, I think we should take questions from the audience. No pressure. No pressure. About anything. <gasps> About food. Yes, access. my beloved. That's my friend Robbie from Florida. The biggest emotional roadblock in creating the narrative. Oh. Um, the biggest emotional roadblock. We can answer this later. <laughs> we'll hang out later. <laughs> yeah. Um, well, I think um, a lot of it had to do with um, with whether or not GJ, he was going to find GJ, um, what that even meant, you know, like, um, um, honestly, I thought I was writing a really funny, hopeful book. Um, that's not what I've heard from readers, including my own agent. Um, uh, so I was like, you know, this is like, I know that it's emotional and I know that it, there's a lot of, you know, sadness in it, but I thought I was writing, I, I was hoping to give Greg or, you know, the, the narrative like a little bit more hope or grace at the end, which I still believe that I did. Um, but um, <laughs> that's me yelling at myself. Okay. Happens. Um, but I think that was it. I think that was like one of the main things is, is um, how far I wanted to push that or, or you know, how I wanted to bring that around. And, and um, you know, I have people in my life that are, I struggle with addiction and, you know, remaining true to that was also really a big concern of mine, so, yeah. Great question, Robbie. <laughs> Thank you, Robbie. <laughs> uh, other questions? Yes? Uh, hi, you mentioned, so you were talking earlier about uh, it being, you know, you were sort of afraid to, or like, is it anything you tackle writing from a male perspective or a, a middle-aged man? Was there anything about that, because, you know, part of being a writer is writing perspectives that aren't your own? Yeah. What about that did you find the most challenging? Um, I, well, I was just really, um, I think when I started to write, I just was wanting to write this person as a person. So I wasn't thinking like, ooh, let me look at him from the stereotype that he is, which I, helps so much, you know? Like, I think all of us, um, all of us writers think like, I want to write about this, you know, like dirt bike racer with a, like a flipper hand. You know, and um, all of us want to do that. But um, if you go, if you look at it from that, and it sort of becomes tropey, it sort of becomes, you know, it's immediately like um, false and and um, silly. So, but if you if you start from a place of emotion, if you start from a place of, um, you know, like even object in that person's home, um, something they touch, it, it it sort of opens up to you. So if you think about it in terms of like I'm just going to write this person, um, and then later you have an existential crisis about, oh my god, this is a you know, middle-aged white man, and I'm you know not that. Um, but then you just keep pushing forward. Um, and yeah, so I think, I think as, as long as, you know, someone was asking me about, um, oh, this is, this is a novel I'm writing about, and I'm, it was a male, and he had written a novel from the point of view of a, of a woman, and he was really concerned about that. And I was like, well, did you write her as a person? And I think you're going to be okay. You know, like, so um, that's step number one. That's a good <laughs> Just imagine that the person is human and go with that. Yeah. I, I'm taking notes. Thank you, Roxanne. <laughs> Other questions? Yes. Um, do you think that the title is misleading? Hmm. To oh, because it sounds like a diet book? <laughs> no, not necessarily, but um, that it actually connects with your seven characters. I think that's what I wanted it to do. Um, so you're saying it's misleading in that it, it doesn't connect with him, or? Uh, it, it's, it's 
seems a little bit random. Oh. <laughs> um, in the book, um, he's thinking about dieting advice that he's been given, and one of the pieces of advice he's been given is eat only when you're hungry. Well, if you're a food addict, or you're any sort of addict, eating only when you're hungry means you eat all the time. So it's sort of a devastating piece of advice. It's, um, and, and, but it's also sort of good news, because it's like, great, well, I'm hungry right now, and I'm going to be hungry in five minutes, and I'm going to be, and I, I, you know, I'm a heroin addict, and I, and I want heroin all the time, so I'll eat only when I'm hungry, and that's great advice for me. I can keep doing what I'm doing. Um, so, you know, that's what I wanted it to convey, um, and, and, and that's all I have to say about that. <laughs> what is the worst piece of a dieting advice you've ever gotten? Um, oh, I guess it's, uh, it's not advice that I was given, it was advice that um, someone I know was told. We both had babies at the same time, and her mother printed out a picture of Giselle Bunchen, mailed it to her, and said, hang this up, and this will help you lose your baby weight. Her baby was days old, days old. I'm gonna go try that immediately. Can you? Yeah, so I, I just- um, From someone's mother? I mean, that's how you lose a mom. Uh-huh, uh-huh, yeah. And I think the one that I hate the most um, is, nothing tastes as good as skinny feels. Which I is a lie. That's someone who has never had french fries. Uh, thank you, or marshmallows, or pillows. Um, I, I, I think, um, we, let's talk about this, because um, if you have time, you just posted a blog post of all the horrible dieting, dieting, yeah. dieting advice that you've been given on your yes. book tour, etc. Yeah, I, I wrote a book called Hunger. And have you guys heard of it? <laughs> um, it's a book about bodies and weight. It's a memoir. And um, I have gotten so much dieting advice since the book came out. And just absurd dieting advice. Like, just crazy batshit nonsense. Like, don't... Roxanne, did you know if you eat broccoli, you'll be healthy? Someone, a Canadian, offered me a $100. Canadian. A gift. But not only that, she said that she would send me a gift worth $100 Canadian if I went vegan for three months and lost weight. And if I didn't, I have to send her $150 US. I mean, it was like the worst deal in the history of the deal. You know her ass got like the $100 Yankee Candle package from someone and was like, I just want to get rid of this. Yeah. Make money. I know. I was just like, bitch, what? Fuck you. What did you say? Did you even vegan. respond? I did. And that's the best thing about Roxanne, isn't it? I did. And she was like, oh, well, I said, first of all, it's Dr. Gay. (laughs) (laughs) Which is like, I never use it in my life, ever, but I use it with assholes all the time. It's like American Express. (laughs) I never leave home without it. (laughs) So I was just like, are you crazy? I said, you can go fuck yourself. Uh, If you read my book, you would know that I've been a vegetarian for most of, like, the past decade, off and on. And so, like, I'm well-versed in plant-based lifestyles, and I'm all for it, but no. And she wrote back that I was very rude. And And you're like, I'll be wiping my tears with my own hundred dollars, okay? Like, if that's, you were, like, how the audacity of reading, and she didn't read the book. She read, of course not. She read an excerpt online, which the internet is good for many things, but not for excerpts, (laughs) apparently. And so, yeah, I get a lot of dieting advice. Yeah. 
a walk three days a, a man. <laughs> what? <laughs> so mean. Do you know Stop that walk, a man? Yeah. Is that a sense of thing to you? <laughs> oh, men have a lot of expertise on women's bodies. <laughs> I know. It's remarkable because I have met so few that have actual expertise on women's bodies. <laughs> But yeah, he told me to walk three days a week. Like, as if I don't. Like, who doesn't? My whole body is blushing. Is it? Really? <laughs> this is good. You're welcome. Uh, my dad told me I had chubby knees. Oh, that's bad. I know. And it's like, I mean, what's worse is if I looked at your knees. Now all I do is work on my knees. I'm so embarrassed. Like, oh my god. Yeah, I was in my homecoming dress. Robbie was there. And my dad was like, you have chubby knees like your mom? <laughs> yeah, that's how you lose a father. You <laughs> have a bunch of parentless children. How <laughs> oh, I lost your father. <laughs> yeah, it, it, like men and they're like, you know, maybe he thought he was helping me, like, you need to cover those up. Like, oh, yeah. like a cat, you know, hmm? a midi length. Because my dad knows that phrase. Um, do I laugh? Do you still speak to him? Oh, I do. Okay. Often. <laughs> He's full of advice. Right, sure. <laughs> Has he read this? No, I sent him a copy. He doesn't. He likes to read everything about me, but not necessarily because it's too close. You know, yeah. he's like people boning, and you know, he's yeah. just like, uh. Um, but he called me and left me a very nice voicemail when he got the book, and um, at the end he kind of choked out. I will read it. Um, so I knew that was a lie. Um, and I called him the next day because it's very even. Even if you're like, okay, obviously I got that message. I feel great. I can move on. If you don't call him to thank him for thanking you, you know, baby boomers, fucking narcissists. Anyway, I love you, daddy. Um, I called him the next morning and I was like, um, hey, I have your, your message. I love it. I'm saving it on my phone. It, it meant a lot to me. He's like, yeah, I got I to gotta run. <laughs> he wasn't in the in the moment anymore, so he had to, you know, like dads, man, you know, man. All right, other questions. Yes. Was he based off a real RV person for us? He seems like a lot of RV people. RV? RV people? Yeah. I have a story called RV people. It's just like connecting. Um, no, no, no. He, he, no. He's like a amalgam of, you know. Lots of different things. An RV person. I never. I didn't. I guess I didn't think of him as an RV person. That's interesting. You've never heard that phrase before. Um. I get. I don't. Robbie, have you? Just, Help me out, Robbie. Yeah, we're just lived that way, so. Yeah, we don't call ourselves that. It's reductive. <laughs> the RV is implied. Yeah. Our it's a. It's a place of living and have inhabitants. Guys, uh, I'm a writer. <laughs> you, you, you use words real good. Uh, <laughs> Other questions? We're happy to talk about whatever. Yes. Yeah, whatever, honestly. Um, so, I'm going to have the second question a little bit. I'm curious if in exploring this perspective from a middle-aged male about food and access, were there any surprising discoveries to you about how a male would address that topic versus how a woman would address it with That's a great question. Um, yeah, I think um, there's less of him. I mean, he does he does think about what women are thinking when they look at him, um, and he does um, he you know he worries about is Marie going to be you know a little worse for the wear. Hopefully, she is you know, um, and um, you know I um, 
I wanted that to be a reality for him. I wanted him to think about that. I wanted him to think about, you know, um, how the other sex thinks of him. Um, and sex for him is a chore, um, but he still has desire. Um, he'd just rather tamp that down so he doesn't have to deal with all the steps it takes to get to the goddamn dining room floor, you know, or, um, you know, Marie, well, never mind, I can't, this is a spoiler. Um, so, you know, it, it's his body stop, he is, his body is um, like a great big uh, guard, you know, like it prevents him from having to um, be touched or touch or um, really truly interact with the world. Um, and that's a safe place to be. Um, have you guys read Hunger? Oh it's it's um, a lot about that. If, yeah, if you guys have questions about hunger, please. No, go oh, me. So She's here. <laughs> you are like my literary hero, and any book that you endorse, I am certainly going to put like a focus on immediately. That was the most beautiful book of literature in the entire body of literature I've ever read. It was courageous, it was beautiful, it was victory over trauma. You moved my life, you changed lives by that book. Thank and you. I Criticism that's unanimous. I, this is the most beautiful book ever written. I have some really stupid questions to ask you about. And I'm just, they're going to kill oh, me if I great. Um, and I just so love that you two are friends. And so I'm definitely, and that looks like a beautiful book. No, but I, I don't know if she's going on tour to Skylight. I asked them, I was trying to figure it out. Um, I did, I, I've done many events here. I know. Um, I did Difficult Women. Um, I toured Hunger at the library. Okay. Yeah, so um, I've already done my LA event. So I want to know two questions. I want to know how you arrived at the idea that middle class girls run away by going to boarding school. Mm -hmm. I, it's such a unique, the body of your work when I look at it, it's such a unique perspective to just realize that you know you go to school six days a week in boarding school and you never have to work in college. So I'm wondering how you, with your focus and your reputation, lift that out because you're working for everybody in your books. And the other thing, and so that's, I'm wondering how you, how you technically, how you can succeed with those kinds of observations, because you walk a big territory. And I'm also dying to know if anybody from your high school has reached out to you, because I would have been that righteous soul that would have. Oh, yeah, so um, uh, the first question is, so there's a line in Hunger about this is how middle, class girls crack up and you run away to boarding school. And, you know, memoir is very specific and it's about your experience. And so one of the interesting things about Hunger is that a lot of people have read the book and felt connection to the book um, and have felt a universality, which is flattering, but it's not a universal book. Uh, it's, it's my book. And so when I said that, I mean, it's of a kind of running away like I it was just to point out like I'm aware of how lucky I am like that my running away was funded at a very great expense by my parents and I went to an elite boarding school like don't cry for me so that's where I was going with that and um what was the second question again I just that book was so beautiful. I can't believe that no one from your high school has reached out to say oh. it was wrong, or you know, I was I, I was there for you, or yeah. Um, I've heard definitely from well, the assault happened in junior high, um, and so I have not heard from anyone from junior high, but I've definitely heard from people I went to high school with 
and it's always interesting the way people remember you versus the way you remember yourself. I remember myself as being a total loser, and I was shy and awkward, but I get so many emails from people I went to high school with who were like, you were so funny and so mean. <laughs> Which is actually true. I know that to be true. Doesn't sound like you. Yeah, it's not. I mean, I wasn't mean like to. I was. Just, I had a sharp tongue. I had a very sharp tongue, um, and I just because I was so isolated and so self-protective that I had a very sharp tongue. But yeah, I've heard from quite a lot of people I went to high school with, um, and in very good ways. It's all been really, um, really great actually, and it's. In many ways, it's nice to know that I'm well-remembered because I don't remember myself well, so that has been very nice as well. Your voice has such clarity. Thank you. I think any writer would die for the clarity and the cultural zeitgeist that you link into where everyone just has to read your work. What do you do for that clarity? Oh, I don't know. I, it's not something that I do. I just try to be as true to what I want to say as possible and I try not to pander, um, which is very difficult, especially when your audience grows. It's very difficult to not want to give it, like the audience what you think they might want. And so I just try to stay true to what I want to say um, and knowing I'm not necessarily going to make friends. And that's definitely what I did with hunger because it's very difficult to talk about weight and say, I want to lose weight um, when the fat positivity community rejects that. And I, I totally accept why they reject it. I think it's necessary to reject that narrative in general. But I also think that narrative is being rejected for people who are 30 pounds overweight. When, in which case, like, girl, yes, you are fine at 150 pounds. Like, stay where you are. Um, and so I just try not to pander. And so that's what I do with hunger. I just say what I wanted to say. Mm -hmm. Thank you. Thank you very much. Thank you. Yes. I have a question for Roxanne. So I just finished your audiobook because that's what I have time for. Mm -hmm. um, and uh, I'm just wondering what your experience was like recording the audiobook. Yes. There's a lot of difficult parts to talk about. To mm -hmm. say that out loud is a difficult experience, much as probably the writing was. Mm -hmm. But I'm just curious what your experience was like. It was great, actually. I recorded it here in LA. Um, a, part, a lot of audiobooks are recorded here. And um, I worked with this really great guy. On the first day, I walked into the studio, and it was this old white man. And I was just like, oh, fucking Christ. <laughs> which teaches me like, that I have as many prejudgments about people as people have about me. He turned out, he ended up being this delightful, empathetic, wonderful director who really helped me make the audiobook into what it was. Uh, he made me as comfortable as I could possibly be. He was like, I read this. I read it to my wife, who loved it. And um, I'm just so in awe. And he was so generous. And he had water and lozenges and throat spray. And it was printed out. And there was a stand. And so there were times when I was so uncomfortable because they were he and the engineer were in the booth talking to me in the soundproof area. And I, there was a glass window so that we could see each other. And there were certain parts that I would read, and I, was just, I would just be like, OK, Roxanne, it's just one sentence. You just have to read this sentence and then get to the next, because it was so uncomfortable. Um, so it was challenging, for sure. But I also, um, this was my first time reading my own work as an, uh, in an audiobook, And I was really glad that I got to read this book, because I didn't want someone else's voice telling my story. And so it was awkward at times, not painful, because it's just been long enough 
especially since the assault, like I've, I've dealt with that as much as I'm going to, um, that it was just more awkward to be intimately in this very small enclosed space with two men I don't know, <laughs> reading about my innermost secrets, um, that the world was going to hear next, like, ooh, what next? Like, maybe next we'll eat nails. Um, so that was challenging, but it was, it was definitely, definitely fun. And it's interesting because now it's in the process of being optioned and for that I think I might not be involved at all which is weird but the audiobook I wanted to be involved in so yeah thank you yes well, I said how did you muster the courage to write hunger it seems impossible oh how did I muster the courage um I, what I do with everything I write is tell myself no one's going to read it. <laughs> and I've said that for years and it's also just the truth. I tell myself no one's going to read my work. I'm always just like, girl, don't worry. No one's going to read it so you can put whatever the fuck you want in there. Uh, and that frees me up because when I think too hard about people actually reading my work, I freeze up and then I hold back and I compromise whatever it is I'm trying to do in a given piece. Uh, and with hunger, I honestly was just so tired of people projecting narratives onto my body that even though this isn't going to fix anything uh, or change the world... Oh, yes, it will. <laughs> thank you. Um, it was still a great opportunity to be able to tell my own story in my way and without having to compromise that story. And so I was terrified, and I actually kind of still am, but I... the benefits outweigh the costs. Hey, oh, hey, okay. Hi. Hi. How's it going? It's going well. How are you? Good. Uh, we were talking about how, um, like, when parents give bad dieting advice, mm -hmm. like, until you lose a mom or dad, and it's easy to tell, like, strangers fuck off when they give stuff like mm. that, but how do you establish that boundary with your parents? Because, like, I've been there where, like, they, they mean well, mm -hmm. like, the concern and love is genuine, but, like, you're, like, we cannot talk about this thing. Yeah, it's challenging. Do you have, Heavy, do you ever have to tell your parents? No? Um, so. I, uh, <laughs> um, I think, I'm thinking of different instances, and um, I think, no, I, 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 in that moment, I feel so ashamed mm -hmm. that I just sort of agree and, and you know, like, oh, yeah, I'll work on, you know, yeah, I know, you know, like, or I'll make a joke out of it, or, you know, whatever. Um, it's, it's hard because there's so many levels and layers to your parents saying anything to you. Yeah. For me it's really challenging, but in the past two years I've put my foot down because I've listened to them talk about my weight since I was 13 years old, 14, when I really started gaining weight. And I'm over it. And so when I turned 40 I was just like, I'm 40 and I'm doing okay. I have a full-time job. I have a writing career. People know who I am. I I, I bring honor to, to, to your name. <laughs> like get off my goddamn back. And so I told them I'm going. And actually, it was it was my person who said, you know, like put your foot down. Just put your foot down. I mean, because you know she's my greatest advocate. And so I was like, huh. So one day I tried it and I just said, you know, guys, we're not going to discuss my body as a family project anymore. It isn't. I, I, I'm aware of the issues. I'm working on it. But I'm going to work on it on my own time. I don't need any sort of fucking input from two very skinny people. Um, and so whenever they would bring up my body, I would just hang up. And it took about three weeks. 
and then they got the shit together because Haitian parents call every day. <laughs> so that was a lot of hanging out. Is it funny how it sometimes takes permission from someone else? Yeah. To to you know like your person saying like just say no. Absolutely. It. it would have never occurred right. to me to stand up for myself with my parents because that's not what Haitian children do. It would have never crossed my mind that I could tell them no and be respectful because like in our culture you respect your parents. They're always right. And to, for someone on the outside to say I respect your parents and I know you love them but you are allowed to say no really helped and so it did take that and then I gave myself that permission and it has been so great to have conversations with my family that doesn't involve talking about my weight and now like I'm losing a little weight and they're like what are you doing click oh. I just had that the other day because I was like that's not on the table I'm sorry that's not on the table like you don't have to bring it up I mean you can be happy about it but celebrate it on your own time because it's not about you at all it's about me and I don't really need to discuss it and so it's that's just a simple helps. thing but it's so hard yeah it's really hard so I would just say you're young it, it's gonna the older you get the easier it is gonna get to put up that boundary and I know family is very important just based on our exchanges um, so you can do it respectfully and just say, I appreciate it, but I'm fine. Because you, you actually are fine. I know, what the hell are you parents talking about? I know, it's like, you're fine. I'm going to give you permission to hang up on your parents. <laughs> yeah. Seriously, I, I mean, I know they mean well, but no, you're absolutely fine. You're a lovely young woman and they should just... It's hard, and I know that you're not going to like walk out of here and be ready to do it tomorrow, but like a year from now, two years, someday it's going to click. So just wait it's also you just saying like, I actually really like myself and, and you know, like, and um, so I reject your narrative. <laughs> I really like myself, you know, and that's hard. It's, it's, okay. hard. Yeah, it's amazing how hard it is to admit, I like myself. Like, I, I always think I'm a mess, so good. I'm a fucking mess, but God, I, I amuse myself. <laughs> I, I really amuse myself. I think I'm very funny. <laughs> Those are some of my favorite tweets of yours, where you're like, I just crack myself up, or um, when you really clap back on someone and you're like, bitch, I could buy your whole family and flush them down my gold ass toilet, you know, like, and you just go crazy and it's like, it's clear you're cracking up and it's yes. really fun. And it is funny, like, and like, some of the people that read them don't get that, it, that I'm not serious, but I mean, I'm serious about the clap back, but I'm not like serious about it. Like, I'm not going to drive to your house and run no. over your whole exactly. family. I'm not going to actually purchase Today. your family. I, I have better things I if I wanted to. Exactly. It's the principle of the right. thing. Just recognize. Right. Right. <laughs> Check, please. I will buy this whole goddamn family. Boom. I have a day job. Like, and then, like so many people are like, I don't, well, I'm not going to read any more of your work. I don't care. <laughs> I have a paycheck <laughs> that does not count on writing. I teach English, so it's not that grippy, but it doesn't matter. My bills are paid. Don't worry about it. It's Dr. K. It is. <laughs> <laughs> this mic is so ornery. Okay, I think we have time for two last questions. Yes. I read your book and I loved it. Thank you. I also read your book and I, I've read all your books and I love them all. <laughs> Thank um, you. And I have to say, like when I was reading your book, as somebody who's lived in a fat body, mm -hmm. um, I 
been over 400 pounds in my life. I've wow. navigated the world. It's not a wow, it's just the truth, right? Mm -hmm. Like, and I've navigated the world fat. And I found myself flipping to your page and being like, it's not fat. It's just something about fat bodies. And I had this like dissonance in my brain because I enjoyed what I was reading so mm -hmm. much. But then it also felt very, at times, like it was a narrative the world has told me I'm supposed to feel mm -hmm. like, you know, like mm -hmm. I'm supposed to feel desexualized, I'm supposed mm -hmm. to feel like other, mm -hmm. I'm supposed to feel um, like all the way, that, like I'm supposed to eat alone in my car in shame, like mm -hmm. that's that, the, the way I feel sometimes like the world looks at me. Mm -hmm. So I struggled with that a bit, and I want to know if that's something that you were aware of while you were Yeah, I think I wanted that for him. I actually really wanted that for him. Um, I think it's, uh, you know, again, I talked about this a little bit earlier, but it's another level of his self-denial, um, and it's another level of him not having to deal with things. Um, he's alone, you know, and he likes it that way, because um, it's easier. Um, so, you know, um, I, I really wanted him uh, to, this is, this is the moment in his life when he is sort of setting all out in his body and, um, and, and moving it, you know, States, you know, moving it down to Florida um, in an RV, and and, and I, I wanted him to, I don't know, I just I wanted things to be very tactile and very, um, you know, he's like uh, he's like peeling the onion of himself, and um, he hasn't maybe ever done that. So I think there's a lot of shame in him. There's a lot of um, fear, and there's a lot of uh, you know like rejection of the world. Um, so, I, you know, that's, to me, um, a lot of that was caught up in his body, in his body issues, in his food issues. Um, so, that was, that's what I intended. Um, I don't want to further any sort of harmful narrative, um, but, you know, that was my intention. Hi. Uh, I had a question for both of you about editing, because mm -hmm. it's, it's both very, very personal work and very, very creative work that may be outside of your initial comfort zone. How do you, how do you have somebody read that and give you feedback and criticism? Emily? I'm like super spoiled. Emily um, is really good about, um, you know, writers, well, I'll say for, I'll speak for myself. Um, there's a lot of self-loathing or self-doubt or um, I love imposter syndrome. Um, but Emily is very direct and, and she's, um, she knows what it's missing. And um, so she's very, and she knows how to push us. So um, I felt like I could, I felt, because I've worked with her on two other books before, I felt like I, I could trust her completely and I knew um, she would help me make the book um, a, a thing, um, a whole thing. So. Um, I, you know, she would she would point out bullshit or say like we need to get a little bit further in here. I think at one point she was like, there needs to be more sex in this, you know, like you, there's not enough like humping. So um, <laughs> she's very professional. Yes. Um, so you know, I uh, it's it's always weird being edited. It's always like, oh, I'm the worst, you know, like this is awful, and um, she's just doing this because she feels sorry for me. Like she's not. This book's gonna just like. They're gonna make this elaborate. Like this, the book's not actually out in the world. This is all like set up. That Emily, she's like, shh, everyone, don't tell. Like the book's not actually out. Um, but you know, let's just make her happy. You know, like. Um, so I, I feel all those things. It's super weird. Um, but I'm very grateful for. It. I don't know if that answered your question at all. It's weird, but I'm, it's helpful. Uh, <laughs> 
Um, with with Hunger, it was actually really challenging because the editor who bought my book left, <laughs> which happens in publishing. We're still friends. We're actually still very good friends. Thank God. And if I could follow her, I would. Um, it's hard. And so I lost her, and then I lost another editor. And the third editor, you know, is someone I didn't know. And I had to turn in this book to this complete stranger. And it was just like, she's a skinny white woman. I was like, what the fuck is she going to be able to do? I mean, actually, all my editors <laughs> are skinny white women. That's just the way publishing works. But um, with, my, with Maya, I knew Maya. I had worked with her on Bad Feminist. We had worked together for years. And there was a rapport there. Um, with Emily, there wasn't, it was a different Emily. There are, there are a lot of Emily's a lot of And I have to say I was really surprised in the best possible way. She gave me amazing edits for Hunger um, because I, I always listen to edits. I, that's just a rule of mine. I think I've said no to 2% of the edits I've all gotten in my career because as much as I believe in myself, it's good to have outside perspective calling you on your shit and just saying, you know, this is weak and this is good, but it could be better or I love this, don't change a thing. Like all of that feedback is really useful for me. And so Emily read the book and she was able to ask questions because there was distance for her from the material because she's not me. And so she was able to ask the kinds of questions that I could then go and answer and revision to make the book work for a broader audience. Um, and she was really gentle, and gentle well-being firm. If that, I know that sounds weird, but she was really respectful of the material and my voice, while also just saying, this doesn't work. And that really, really helped. And I was nervous about the edits. Like, what is she going to say? Is she going to hate how I've written about my life? But she respected my voice. And so I've just been really lucky in all, all of my books to work with great editors. And there's this myth that books don't get edited, and that's just not true. Editors work really, really hard for very, very low pay in a very expensive city. Um, and in general, they are people who are passionate about books. And so um, I had someone who was very passionate about my book and respected my life story. And that really helped me have the ability to go back and step away from the things that weren't working that I could. There was a, there's one chapter that's not in the book that I'm so attached to. I still love it and I have saved it in, in a word file called I Love You. <laughs> it's a chapter about baking brownies and I felt like this was the chapter and Emily was like, this just doesn't fit in the book at all. And I was like, what are you talking about? I say some very profound and beautiful things in this chapter. And she's like, yes, but they don't belong in the book. And so those profound and beautiful things are on my hard drive. Um, and it, it's good. And, she, and now that I've read the book as a whole, she's absolutely right. That chapter was just me being self-indulgent and like writing pretty things and in no way that were connected to the overall narrative that I was constructing. And so, I, I, for me, the more personal the writing, the more I need an editor. But that'll be in your cookbook. No, <laughs> I've never, <laughs> never. But I, I would love to like just watch Ina make a cookbook. I know. <laughs> oh my god, there's nothing I wouldn't do for that. I'd just be like, Ina, I will lick your pots clean. <laughs> you can take that in a number of ways. I intended it in a number of ways. I didn't know you loved her in a sexual way. No, I don't, but I, I, I'm open to that. <laughs> I'm, I'm, the reason, the only reason I don't is because I'm very respectful of her marriage to Jeff. Yeah. <laughs> 
<laughs> I love her. She's so uh, and we need her now more than ever because she's also a nuclear policy expert. I know. She's like smart as shit. I, that's what we call it in Florida. <laughs> smart as shit. Um, yeah, she's like she's like a ASMR for for me. Asthma. Do you know? What is ASMR? Right? Is I'm saying that right? Asthma. Yeah, girl. Um, you know, like the people get off on like soothing sounds, like um, people folding sheets. There's like YouTube videos of people folding sheets, and the sound is like very soothing. Or like I didn't know there was a name for it. Uh huh. There's so you have ASMR for I know. oh, among other things. Yes, I do. Among other things, you have ASMR in your vagina. For I know. Oh, oh my God, that was so. Funny. <laughs> on that note, ladies and gentlemen. <laughs> You've been listening to the Skylight Books author reading series. Don't forget, you can listen to this and all of our other great podcasts at skylightbooks.com. Thanks again for stopping by, and we hope to see you soon.